Hello, everyone. I hope you're all safe and well and enjoying this podcast series at a time of adaptation as we slowly recover from the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's podcast was actually recorded at the beginning of April when the crisis was in full force at a time when we were just trying to predict the impact an imposed isolation was going to have on our work and our lives. We discussed how corporations would have to adapt to our new reality and compared it to other moments of crisis, such as the Great Recession of 2008, and how these two moments affected the established corporate playbook. We had a very special guest, someone who influenced me since the day I was born. So as you listen or watch this episode and learn more about the forces of standardization and personalization in our lives, I'd like for you to also take a moment to appreciate the power of individuality that permeates two individuals who are raised with the same values, the same parents, resources, and family, and yet ended up growing up with two completely different personalities and perspectives that respect, appreciate, and love one another. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Now. Our guest today um, is the one that is most special to me. Uh, he's my brother, Eric Yopis. And uh, before I tell you a little bit about him professionally, let me tell you the impact he's had on my life. You know, as an older brother, uh, he's been one to uh, really make sure that I always became the person uh, that I've become. And even though we're very different people, one thing that's always remained constant is his love and his support and him wanting me in many respects to be better than him, which isn't the case, but he has certainly always made an effort to make sure that I always maximize my potential as an individual, and I love him so much for that. But, you know, let me give you an example of kind of Eric's mindset. I don't know, Eric, if I got the date right or not, but it was right around when I was like eight years old. What happened? Um, Well, Eric and I were playing with money, and I had a dollar bill in my hand and, uh, and he had a dime. And he said, hey, Glenn, you know, that dollar bill, oh, that's just a piece of paper. What you really want is this dime. This dime is, is made out of, you know, out of, out of something that's hard and real and it'll last forever. Well, that paper, that thing can disintegrate. It won't have any value. Here, let me give you my dime for your dollar. Now, that's a real story. And I'll never forget it because <laughs> Eric has learned to get the most out of every situation. And I think that leads to why he's had such a successful professional career, uh, most recently as the chief strategy officer uh, for Airmark, but uh, also he was the chief strategy officer uh, for Pepsi. So I'd really like to thank my brother for being here, but more so thanks for being a big brother, Eric. Thanks so much, Glenn. Quite an impressive uh, intro there. And uh, 
there, there actually was probably 50 other variations of the same story that he just told you. Well, but, um, then you know what? Hold on a second. I'm going to tell you another one. One time we were in isolation uh, in respecting what that means today in the backseat of our mother's uh, Pontiac. And what happened? Well, Eric and I, uh, he, he, we love those, uh, what do you call those hostess uh, cakes? Or what do you call yeah. those hostess pies, right, Eric? And so Eric inhaled his, his apple pie, and I still had my lemon pie. And I said to him, ooh, Eric, look at this. L look how delicious this looks. And I must have been, what, 12 years old. And what did Eric do? You were like six or seven. No, six, well, even worse, Eric, yeah. because what did he do? He grabbed it and he pushed it in my face. I think that's another, another iteration of the dime and dollar story. But anyway, um, Eric, I'm glad that you're with us. You know, look, let's face it. Uh, we are dealing with uh, a time of tremendous uh, change and uncertainty. And, you know, especially uh, given your roots in corporate strategy, I really want to play off that today because I actually believe that crisis was happening well before COVID-19. What do I mean by that? As you well know, most of corporate America, if not all, were being faced with uh, corporate transformation efforts. Yep. Uh, they were uh, trying to transform themselves uh, to better serve, at least I believe, a much more informed and knowledgeable in individual. And in many respects, we can say that this transformation was a realization that standardization was was showing its limitations as the needs of the individual were showing the influence of how personalization was really now reinventing old and outdated standards of the past. So, Eric, as you see this crisis, um, and again, through your uh, corporate strategy lens, uh, do you believe that this crisis is accelerating uh, what those transformation efforts were, or has it put them on pause? Uh, where, where do you see that? I think you've, you've, you've uh, teed up a lot of the themes that uh, I would highlight. I mean, I think the first thing is that um, view, I view what's happening with COVID-19, or candidly with any sort of, of, of crisis, but perhaps this one's unique for a variety of reasons. The first one is, this one is truly global, right? I mean, I think it's hit every country of the world or 150 something countries, right? So it's not an American theme. It's not a Chinese theme. It's not a, a European theme. It's a real global theme and global in the sense that everyone is going through it without a playbook, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't like an established playbook where, you know what, you know, in 2008, the central banks had a playbook. Politicians had to do something to also show their alignment to create confidence in government actions, backing up what central banks were doing. But ultimately it was, a handful of, of players. This is about a different area of weakness and, and, and challenge, which is around public health, right? And public health systems that were not candidly uh, created, at least in the U.S. and in many parts of the world, although Europe's a little bit different, you know, et cetera. But irrespective of how they were created or what their what their what their uh, mission statements were, all of the world's public health systems are being pushed beyond crisis points, right? in terms of, you know, capacity levels, in terms of supplies, even in terms of the more, the most basic thing, which is that there isn't a cure for this, right? 
Yeah. So imagine having to treat people when you really don't have a playbook about what you need to do. They're just trying to do things to comfort patients and to uh, and hope for the best, right? So, um, you know, it, it's really unique for so many reasons, right? Even during the, the most dire period of 2008, when the financial crisis hit, we knew, or economic theory, and it was right, was really about huge stimulus efforts that ultimately could throw up the tide and reinstate confidence while we were essentially having to pick the winners and losers in terms of financial and other uh, institutions that would have to essentially bow out, right? Yeah. In this case, go ahead, go ahead, Eric. In this case, multiple levels are being impacted. So you've got obviously the simplest one, which is that, you know, millions of people's lives are being impacted uh, from a health standpoint. Millions of families' lives are being impacted economically, as well as what their what living and what what their you know interactions are socially and otherwise. So their lives are coming to to a halt, so to speak. Right? You can't take your kids yeah. out to play. You can't go to school. You can't go to work. You can't do all these things. Each of these have ripple effects that you could literally create decision trees around, showing that there's huge crisis points across the board. Right? Um, and with each crisis point, you know, as you kind of level, lay these out, I, I would have to believe that there's a lot of things that, you know, they're not, they're, you know, there's going to be some un, unforeseen outcomes. So one of the obvious ones is that when you're locked in your house, even if you've got your loved ones with you, there's going to be some mental illness, right? For a lot of people, right? I mean, it has to happen, right? We're not meant to be, you know, indoors all the time, right? Um, and not doing normal activities, right? So I, that's just one, but there's a whole variety of other things. So, um, you know, if you kind of start, because I don't want this to go to too many degrees of uh, of distillation and drilling down, but ultimately this is a this is a crisis that is truly a crisis because of the globalization, because of the stresses across numerous areas, public health, political systems, economic systems, supply chains. I mean, you can just go down and down and down. Yeah, it hits everything. Ultimately, what's going to happen, I believe, you know, amongst other things, are that um, there will be very clear, and you can start to see them, um, you know, going back to your to the core question you asked, Glenn, there's going to be a whole, there's going to be a, re, a resetting of the world as we know it. Within the resetting of the world that we, as we know it, and I'm just going to try to keep this to the corporate world, right, there's going to be very clear winners and losers, yeah. and there will be a lot of companies and a lot of sectors that were meant, we're already on a slow kind of burn towards becoming irrelevant, but that's gonna be fast forwarded big time, right? Okay. So, if you, so if you look at retail, let's look at retail, that's probably the simplest one, right? Um, there's a lot of companies that for years have been under tremendous stress because of the disruption that, you know, digital players have had on their businesses, right? Guess what? I would imagine that the supermarket universe, we already knew that that was already happening, Fast forward it, and what was supposed to have happened in five years will probably happen in the next five months. Yeah. Um, likewise, you can you can look at mass merchandisers, right? The J.C. Penneys, the Sears, it's a, they were playing with with you know business models that were doomed to collapse. They will collapse a lot faster, right? I mean, you can just go channel by channel in retail, and I'm I'm sure it's pretty clear to see where that's going to end up, right? On the other hand. Or fundamental ways of working, even in industries that are that are benefit that are benefactors of this, right? Because there will be some very big benefactors. Um, the way we work as corporate entities, and in particular the touch points we have with our consumers, customers, 
uh, our supply chains, whatever they might be, are going to be very different going forward, right? Um, I mean, take something as simple as how you manage a company. I know there's a lot underneath uh, something like that, but senior leadership teams, you know, to me, the very first thing that has to happen in a crisis like this is that um, you're going to have to create a very clear, uh, you know, central nervous center to run the company, right? Yeah. So I don't care what corporation you are, you're not going to be going to work. You're not going to be meeting with the top eight to 10 or 12 senior leaders in the company. That just changes, right? Most companies, even those that are very technologically savvy, are not used to managing that way. Oftentimes, they don't have the, 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 the behavioral codes because to talk over video is different from being face-to-face, -face, right? You don't see the same things. You don't see the human side. You don't see emotional cues. You don't, you don't, you know, it's just very different things, right? Oftentimes, people take cues from the CEO of the company, right? Well, guess what? He may not even be on the screen, right? I mean, or his right. screenshot won't be around when, while I'm talking, right? So there's a lot of different behaviors that have to be established. Yeah. And we often don't have the practices in place. We often don't have the data to actually make decisions, right? We often, because people put off IT investments or IT investments are seen to be, are, are regarded as a luxury in many companies. So again, that's how they're going to, fast track the winners or the losers going forward um, in terms of how you even run the company, right? That's so the highest Eric, level. So Eric, let's, 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 let's unpack, and Scott, help me here. Let's unpack yeah. a few things. Number one, Eric talked about a playbook. Right. Well, in the age of standardization, there are standardized playbooks. Eric, you've seen so many in your career, you probably know what's inside of them before it's even passed out. Because, well, in your case, you're creating the playbook as, the, mm -hmm. as, a, as a chief strategy officer. But what's going to change about the playbook? Will it be a standardized playbook? Will playbooks have much more interdependence on, on the front lines than ever before? I mean, how do you define a playbook uh, after crisis settles? Well, even before I go longer term, I just, if, you, if you don't mind, if we if maybe we, you know, you and Scott and I could just focus probably what I'd characterize as very near term actions, because, again, because of the lack of a playbook or because the, the prior playbook is being thrown in the trash, right, because everything is being disrupted. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple of real simple things that at least I would offer to consider on the short term. Okay. So we talked about a new version of how you manage the firm, you know, in terms of seeing the senior leadership team. I do believe that actually some standardization will be necessary near term because when there's so much chaos going on, you have to have some set rituals and very simple things that you can do just to keep things moving forward. Right? Oh, will those standards be those that we used in the past or will they? I do believe short term, they will be with some changes. Okay. okay. So I, I'd say, because again, you, you can't change the engine of a plane while it's up in the air, right? You got to make sure you keep that engine, and, you know, and maybe make some tweaks until the plane lands at least, okay? So again, I'm talking very near term, maybe the next 90 days or, or, you know, the next few months. But I think that the first one is obviously the way the leadership team works and interacts. I think the second thing or part of that that has to happen at, is, is that there needs to be a profound improvement in how firms communicate with all levels of, of, of their employee base, but in particular to ensure both safety, right? 
because safety is paramount right now. And we're living in, we can't, many people don't even know just how dangerous, you know, COVID is, right? In terms of how simple it is to get it or how to infect other people. So safety in, and, you know, pronounced safety is real important. But I also think in terms of every step of communication, whether it's a written memo or whether it's in particular face-to-face -face interactions, leadership teams and all levels of management really need to have, and this is where I think a playbook is important because oftentimes people don't know how to do this instinctively, but they do need to be able to communicate with empathy and simplicity. Because again, you don't understand what each person we work with or interact with is going through on a personal level, right? You may have seen some of the videos, you know, CNN I saw the other night where some healthcare worker was just having a huge breakdown, right? Um, these are very stressful times, right? And people are being pushed physically, mentally, emotionally, and certainly personally on a variety of levels because of the economics and, and even other things that are going on, right? Yeah. So, so we do need a playbook on at least the basics of how you can be, communicate with empathy and simplicity. Great. Scott, uh, Scott, unpack this. There's, the, yeah, Eric, okay. is, Eric, Eric, I think, has created a whole playbook for us here. Yeah. Unpack it for us. So, Eric, uh, I was really excited because an as an anthropologist, you used the word ritual, and that yeah. just got me rolling. And the, the, the thing is, is you were talking about the playbook. And as you were starting to talk about this idea of a playbook, whether there is one or there isn't one now, um, my first inclination was, okay, so a lack of a playbook, in what ways is that an opportunity? And I was ready to jump in and ask you that question. Is what opportunities do we get by not having a playbook? What is the upside to not having the playbook? And yeah. you actually went there without even me saying it. Um, you started to talk about the near term versus the long term. And when you talked about the near term, you were talking about the opportunities for reinventing or creating a new yeah. playbook, that that was the opportunity and you're talking about evolution of leadership. And what I would like to hear your thoughts on a little bit deeper would be, you, you said that it's, you, you came to communications, which is important, but you're talking about leadership or corporate rituals that need to be perhaps reinvented or readapted. Um, one thing I like about sort of the pairing of your ritual comment, as well as the, the communication comment, is that we as humans have created rituals in all sorts of ways, both mm -hmm. on the religious spectrum, but all, all over the human spectrum. We create rituals largely to help us talk about things and communicate and connect on things that are far too complicated for any one brain to grasp with, such as mortality. You know, we have rituals in our churches and our synagogues and our mosques and in our other places where we go to be, find community and we have those rituals specifically to help guide us through that process and through that connection with others. I'm curious, can you talk to me about maybe either existing rituals that you see in some of the previous playbooks for crises that might be very relevant for us to be thinking about today? Or conversely, are there former rituals that were standard models that got us through a lot of tough moments that you think are no are obsolete, no longer effective for us to be relying on. Yeah, I know that's a lot, but talk to me about there's these. A lot to unpack there, Scott. Um, my simple mind would say the following. I mean, in most cases, uh, a crisis would not put or or would not require you know the, the essentially would would not result in, in a very short time period in. Um, the whole the wholesale um, destruction of certain sectors, okay. 
or profoundly change the corporate landscape the way one of this nature is doing. Um, so what does that mean? It means simple terms. Again, let's go back to 2008, probably the last big, you know, kind of calamity that we had, a uh, very different one, but beyond the banking sector and certain, you know, parts of their value chain, you know, like, you know, you know, companies that, that you know, secondary players in the mortgage market or insurance companies or whatnot. And I, I realize a lot there as well, but this is totally different because it's going to basically leave um, a long trail of sectors that are basically dead and, and they're, they're done. Right. Yeah. Um, so what does that mean? It meant that back in 2008, most companies, what did they do? They didn't worry about certainly the health of their employees. That wasn't important. What was important was essentially let's cut costs. Okay. Let's, you know, let's, let's raise prices where we can and we'll get through this, right? We'll have a few ugly quarters or an ugly year, but we'll we'll still be around, right? This is a total game changer because it's going to, um, firstly, we're all potentially in harm's way, right? There's a lot of companies whose CEOs, senior leadership teams, people are going to die, right? Yeah. People are dying, right? Die. You know, yeah. so... It's not like we can just shield ourselves because we have more money or a higher or a more important role on the totem pole of a corporation or whatever. And, and you certainly can't just go to the same simple plays of cutting costs, taking price, and we're fine, right? What this means is that I think our, as, a, as a firm, you've really, if you don't have a value chain, and perhaps most importantly, a proposition in terms of the product or service or whatever you do that's relevant in the near term, but perhaps most importantly, going forward, you're done. So you, you got to kind of rethink who you are and, and why your product is relevant or should be relevant going forward, right? So as I think about it, I mean, a real simple example, right? I go to the grocery store, you know, during these times and look at the shelves. Look at the stuff that's, so for every shelf that's totally empty, you're going to have three or four shelves that are totally full. Mm. What that's telling me is, what are the products that are really critical to people versus the stuff that's nice to have, but not, you know, but not essential, yeah. right? So again, I go back to things like, do we really have products and, and offerings and value props that are really critical going forward? Or are you just a luxury that, you know, you had, you know, to waste some time and some of your spending money or free money, right? And I think right now it's drawing very clear demarcations around you know, kind of value props for corporations and and the ones that are over-engineered versus yeah. those that are really um, relevant for today's crises, right? Eric, is the primary, is, in, talk of, in terms of the evolution of, of corporate, uh, essentially mission and, and identity, um, is from a strategist's point of view, is corporate mission essentially following along with things that, that Glenn has uh, helped us to share um, of in terms of, of the idea of um, let me just put it this way, is corporate mission being forced or being pushed into, at least if it wants to survive, if a corporation wants to survive, in towards broadening into a more, uh, um, I would just say, gosh, I don't even know the right words, but a more broad mission that is less to do with the actual um, sustainability of the corporation and its mechanics itself, and more about the mission of the organization itself in terms of not turning a profit to shareholders alone, but that there's, that that's part of it still, but there's a new mission that 
is de- that profit depends upon, and that is integrated an integration with essentially the values and the norms of what's going to come after this, and that is more interconnectedness. Um, so you can't just have a product for the product's sake. The product has to serve, it has to be a cookie and it has to save something or do something positive. Well, I think that's where we're heading, right? Uh, I would think up until now, with the exception of very few enlightened companies that have enlightened boards, uh, that have a broader social and humanistic uh, reason for being, uh, which is a real small minority, right? Or, or the yeah. private companies, right? But publicly traded companies, I think going forward are certainly going to have to um, have a more um, ambitious and social, uh, socially impactful mission statement and reason for being. I really do because, well, we've seen this already. You know, millennials have very different values than than Gen Xers or Boomers and all the other ones, right? And so, um, their values are much more around, you know, at the highest level, you know. The, the welfare of the earth, the sustainability, you know, simpler life living, you know, less, you know, um, you know, you know, less dependence on corporations, all this, you know, you just kind of distill it down, right? Yeah. Um, being less in debt. I mean, there's a whole variety of different things and I don't want to go into that, but the, I guess the real takeaway here is that everyone's value prop is being, is going to be put and particularly going forward as we evolve through this and, Think about what it means, but everybody's value prop is going to be put under a um, at a very intense light of focus. Yeah. And consumers are, you know, will look at them and they'll say, "Is this really relevant to me or not?" Right? And they'll exactly. vote with their dollars, as well as with their hearts and minds in terms of corporations that they think are are really doing these things versus you know just saying, using it as corporate you know PR. Right. Another sales pitch. Yeah. Yeah. So so Eric, let me again, if you could just. Um, give us maybe two or three things. What, and again, one thing is made clear, uh, unless you have any value to offer, right now corporations are silent, other than the emails that you get about what they're doing at this time of COVID-19. But they're silent, they're quiet. Help us understand, because I think that without getting into detail, You've been part of leading strategies and organizations uh, that one would deem essential and non-essential. What, what do you think will help the audience understand what is that corporate strategist thinking right now that is a part of an organization whose products and services are essential versus those that are non-essential? Um, look, I think I think as a strategy person, what what I would be uh, focused on is first and foremost, um, obviously you, you got to figure out how the what what's the play we're running as a company, right? How is the play being adapted and um, and how is it evolving? Just to get through the near term, I don't think a lot of people are spending a lot of time worrying about six months from now, right? Even though typically as a strategy person, you would spend a lot of time going into the, you know, the long-term stuff, right? Right now, it's really about survival and about trying to uh, do the right things for your stakeholders, you know, your customers, your, your suppliers, your, 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 uh, your client, your, you know, your, uh, you know, your, your relationships, et cetera. Um, 
and do the best you can to keep the lights on. There's a lot of companies whose top line and certainly their cost structures is being hit, are being hit so hard that I'm sure a lot of these companies, uh, winner or loser, essential or non-essential, are having to re 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 reset their costs, and that's really hard to do. Very having to fire a lot of people, right? Because they're you know those that have a lot of uh, frontline employees, I'm sure they're ha having to make some very difficult decisions. Uh, they're having to put off doing a lot of, of things that they had planned to do during the year to improve their effectiveness, efficiency, et cetera. So what they're kind of essentially doing is really kind of trying to turn into very um, highly efficient and streamlined entities that um, can stay afloat, can stay alive. So this is about just staying alive right now, right? So hold on so a second, Eric. Just, just yeah. so I'm clear. Is it, I mean, can we really create efficiency when things are so chaotic i mean just help us through sure that yeah you can of course absolutely yeah absolutely so when you're look i've been parts of lots of companies where you knew when a quarter was heading in the wrong direction you had to reset your cost structure right and i would imagine that when that's happening times 10 or times 20 that's happening as much as it possibly can yeah i'm not saying it's going to get you to you know, kind of the margin structure you wanted at the end of the day, but it's going to keep you afloat, hopefully, right? I mean, so I just, a lot of that's happening right now. Yeah. That's yeah. why companies are just trying to do the bare basics in terms of, you know, going through those exercises. And I would imagine that they're also, um, you know, the ones that are perhaps, you know, maybe maybe beneficiaries is, the, is a bad word because, but some certain industries are actually benefiting right now, right? So if you look at the alcohol industry, right? People are drinking a lot more than ever before. You know, spirits consumption is up 70%. Beer consumption is up 50-something percent. I mean, it's all up, right? And people are sitting at home drinking a lot, right? Because there's not a lot to do. Um, no, but, but where I was getting at, Eric, is that when there's so much variability, like you said, to this 20th power, I mean, how do you create near-term strategies and how quickly do they pivot? I know these are unprecedented moments, but in your experience, uh, again, take us inside the head of, of a chief strategy officer. So I'll make it simple because there's a lot of moving parts and different companies are going to have different issues. But I'd say at the highest level, you've got to do some of the things we talked about before. You've got to have, first of all, you've got to figure out how you're going to run the firm, right? Given that people are, you know, spread very far away uh, physically from each other. Mm -hmm. Secondly, how you communicate with all levels of the company and also assure that you have an uh, you know, a real strong um, em emphasis on displaying empathy and simplicity. And I think the other piece, which is really going to get to the heart of your question, Glenn, is I think that if, if I was doing this right now, the first thing I'd tell my CEO is um, that we would want to do some things to really look at re and revisit every node of our end-to-end -end value chain and figure out what are critical activities versus non-critical ones and get rid of the non-critical ones, right? Get rid of the stuff that has a lot of paperwork, it takes a lot of time, you know, basically serves as a speed bump that might have been valuable in normal times, but right now essentially gets in the way of us being able to assure simplicity and speed to market. That's what I would do. Now, it sounds really easy, but there's a lot of stuff no, in the no, no, value chain, right? Very complicated. From it's, what you decide that you're going to make and sell, all the way to how you make it, how you distribute it, how you sell it, 
and, how and why you make it right and why you make I was going to say, and why you make it. One and of the, why you make it, absolutely. I think, I think that's what I see in terms of the, the meta picture of corporate, corporate mission and the transition from, uh, to, to, a, to a new type of mission, and that is actually addressing the why. Why yeah. am I making uh, for the Pepsi uh, challenge? Why am I making Fritos? You know yeah. what I mean? Um, and I think that's, that's, for me, as an outsider that isn't a corporate strategist, something that I find um, exciting in terms of the potential future for uh, a stronger economy. Yeah, I think that, you know, again, near term, it's, it's really about those few things I just mentioned. I think that is I think midterm. So what do I define as midterm? Maybe six months to the next year, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we will have those fortunate to have survived the wreckage of this pandemic physically as well as, you know, as from a corporate standpoint, um, or should probably will be dusting themselves off and probably starting to uh, do what you just mentioned, Scott, which is starting to really adjust their value propositions. It's very hard to change a mission statement, you know, in six months later, but I think the core value propositions will probably be revisited. Okay. Certain brands, products, categories we participate in, some decisions may have to be made, right? Um, and I think that um, likewise, you coming out of it, you'd probably, so, why am I, what am I competing in and why is probably the first question. And then within that, there's probably a whole load of what I would characterize as signature actions that would probably start to occur. Okay. Signature actions are around really starting to adapt our policies and processes around our consumers, our customers, our employee base, you know, all these things, because you think about it, everyone's there's a new there's a new normal that will have emerged right within that new normal you've got to adjust your 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 um your perceived value and your relationships with every you know node of the value chain to to be relevant right which is what i think what we were talking about before so mm -hmm. um you know i think that that's that's probably midterm right um yeah. you know and then i think that um you know this is the bad side, right? But okay. midterm, some price, some companies could say, you know what? I could charge more for my products, right? Because they're so critical, right? Um, and they might, right? And yeah. they'll be able to get away with it because, you know, they're in such entrenched positions. So a J&J &J or, you know, manufacturers of toilet paper or whatever, or people who make cleaning supplies mm -hmm. probably have a lot of price elasticity to, to, to do what they want, right? Right. Um, you know, because everybody needs those things, right? Yeah. Um, they may they may adapt their products, however, and say, you know what? Instead of having fifteen different reasons why in the past I was pitching my toilet paper, right? They may just say, you know what? I need to come up with simpler products. Yeah. That that work for the new consumer horizon, where people don't have the amount of spending power. They don't care about you know real juiced up you know products with multiple, you know, elements of a value process. You want to need something simple that works, right? And is and is dependable, right? So I think that all that stuff should happen, you know, uh, around assessing the value prop and then having a few signature actions that should make us more relevant to our employees, our customers, and certainly the market overall, right? And then I think that the real hard work is maybe beyond the midterm, which is maybe a year and beyond, right? 
Hey, Eric, that Eric, is really Eric, to try to learn. Eric, I'm sorry. Can you just hold off on the, on the long term? Because in the midterm, you got me thinking. And I think a lot of people that are watching and listening to this would want your perspective on. And I may not be saying it the right way, and I apologize, but you'll piece this together. What you've brought in, again, perspective to me on, again, in my background in consumer packaged goods, is, you know, we all know those products that are margin friendly and those that are not. Those that require volume uh, to make up for the margin that really isn't there. And yet you have those that have a substantial amount of margin uh, to help, that helps pay for a, a lot of things that those uh, underperforming products uh, uh, create pressures on us for. But here's the question. We talk about the market, right? The disruption of the stock market and valuation and just how disruptive that's all become. But when you think about the midterm, at what point do you start dissecting margin, recognizing, again, in the organizations that you've been a part of, all publicly traded. And again, this is the part where I may not be asking the right question, but I know you're going to figure it out, is what it becomes the intersection between the margins and EBITDA and what the new stock market looks like, because companies are going to have to compress margin going back to what you said. You know, disposable income isn't going to be what it used to be for the masses. So I think by default, we're gonna see some pricing pressures. We're gonna to have to see reductions in pricing just to keep things afloat back to what you said before around survival. Am I making any sense? And if I am, can you help us piece this together? Yeah, I mean, no, you, you raised a lot of good, good points. I, I think um, I'll, I'll, I'll jump to the, to the finish line here. I, I don't think we're, we're going to be in a world where um, where um, there's going to be a lot of companies that will have the luxury of of necessarily um, spending too much time worrying about how their margins have gone down um, because they're going to be fighting for their survival. Um, I think overall, we're, there's a very high probability that we won't be entering a recession. We're going to be entering a multi-year depression. And within that, everybody's going to be suffering. So it's about survival long term. And it's about, again, the points I raised before about adjusting your value proposition to stay relevant. Whether you, you're going from 8% margins down to four, that's probably the least of your problems. It's really about whether you're deemed to have the, the value proposition and the financial wherewithal to survive. Right. Yeah. Now, there'll be winners as well. Don't get me wrong. I think. Companies in the technology space are, you know, again, it's what we talked about at the outset. It's about this is going to really create a, a lot of roadkill five years faster than it was projected to across many sectors. Mm. So, um, again, I, I would I would spend less time worrying about, you know, you still worry about it as in a, in a, if you put your corporate hat on around your margin structure. But it's I think there's going to be so clear around what products and services and where to play and how to win. Uh, is going to, you know, is going to make it very, very clear that people are going to have to make stark choices just to stay afloat. I really do believe that. I don't think it's going to be 
where, you know, in the past where you had a whole portfolio of products, I think some of those products that you knew were going to die after a while, they're going to, they're going to go on fast forward in terms of death mode. Right. And others, even the best ones are the highest margins and the most, you know, relevant, they'll still stay relevant, but they're probably going to be dealing with, uh, you know, less of a financial uh, or, or, or diminished financial attractiveness. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think the one thing, though, that play into all this is that, again, from a consumer standpoint, consumer goods standpoint, um, although it really impacts all industries, is that um, a lot of companies have been, you know, really stuck with, you know, kind of, or had the luxury of putting off digital transformation. Digital transformation is not going to be a, uh, an option. It will and must happen, and you will not survive to come out of this without digital transformation. So that means, you know, and that really has profound impacts on how you work, the way your ways of working, you know, your ways of tra of, of of collecting and assessing information, the choices you make based on. I mean, everything how you run the company is going to fundamentally change because you're because of your increased reliance on digital transformation. So companies are gonna to have to take long and hard looks at doing this. I think that for the near term, even for those who have already kind of put their fingers or their toes in the water already, um, as I talked earlier, I think about revisiting your, your kind of end-to-end -end value chain. You're gonna to have to do this with a digital transformation mindset and um, with a goal, I think, of, you know, again, trying to um, shift your value prop um, Leveraging digital transformation, but also in a way where, uh, you know, perfection is the enemy of good. So in other words, just let's do, you know, digital transformation 101 before we, wor before we worry about 201 or 301 or, or something that's kind of world class, right? So you're going to have to start to do these things, whereas before, you know, people said, oh, if I don't really know kind of the end game, why do what I start at the beginning? And, you know, these things create a lot of kind of, you know, um, questions that most operators are not used to really dealing with. So uh, again, I, 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 without making it too difficult, I think that becoming digitally savvy and running the company using technology will be um, a must do rather than um, a nice to have. And therefore, and there's another factor to think about, during these challenged economic times, you're gonna have to accelerate your investments in digital channels and tools favoring speed over perfection. So Eric, wh where do people fall into this? I mean, it, it sounds to me like the strategic bet is on technology. What about people? I mean, don't you think that there's a, there should be a greater focus on, on how we evaluate the type of talent that we're going to need? Um, you know, where, where do people fit into this mix? Companies are people whether they're running off of a backbone of technology or not, there are people there. I, I just think the type of person and the type of industries that survive and prosper, and this is again, longer term, will probably be less manually intensive and much more automated and digitally uh, enabled, right? So it will require, uh, and again, not for all industries, but yeah. um, you know, it will require more knowledge workers. It will require people that, have a com that are comfortable in terms of working you know, in remote areas, you know, tied to a laptop, assessing information, 
and being uh, savvy as to how to use it to create value. Eric, let, let, me, let me shift gears here, but before I do, Scott, did you want to jump in and ask anything before I move forward? No, I'm, I'm really good. I was just actually taking some notes about this. I'm kind of putting a few ideas together, so I'm still percolating. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. So, Eric, tell me what's another perspective I'd like for you to take us, um, take us to is what's happening uh, in the boardroom right now? Obviously, they're not getting together. Uh, it's all virtual. But where do you see, uh, let's just say, the composition? Uh, and maybe this is too premature of a question, but it's really a twofold. What are they doing now? In, 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 and what do you think compositions of boards were going to look like later? Because let's face it, you just said in so many words that we're going to have to uh, uh, really reinvent ourselves. Technology is going to be key. We're going to have different needs, different types of skill sets uh, to survive and operate uh, efficiently and strategically. But yet, there's not a whole lot of board members, at least that I know of, that are equipped with the wisdom and the value to add any organization with those types of conditions. So what are your thoughts around what boards are thinking right now and what do you maybe see uh, what they'll look like in the future? Well, I think um, um, there will be, uh, I think the definition of what constitutes um, a good board and the roles of board members and the you know the composition et cetera will will all will all be put on fast forward right and um, mm. within that I think we'll we'll probably leap uh, over the coming couple of years from what was kind of the classic you know board that had you know people that were had a lot of functional expertise and operational expertise to still having those but probably some functions may be less important. And other functions would probably be moved up in terms of their criticality. And again, just playing back some of the themes we've been talking about, I think um, certainly technology and digital uh, digital skills and understanding will be a must-have. And look at corporate boards; how many of them really have that today? Yeah. Not a lot, right? Some some do, but not a lot. Um, and again. As that becomes an area, as digital transformation um, and digital channels become an area of emphasis going forward, you're going to and and companies accelerate their investment in those areas. You know, companies the, the composition of boards in my mind is candidly around where is it the next dollar going to go to, right? And so the skill sets tend to tend to represent areas of where companies need to invest and have uh, primacy in the future. And so I think. Themes around digital knowledge, themes around the new knowledge-based worker, which is again going to require a very different CHRO capability, right? I actually don't. I think that that function may go away as a consequence of this. By the way, well, I don't think it'll go away. I think it'll be transformed, right? So the new, it'll the new head of, of of human resources will be very different from the one we grew up with, right? Yeah, totally. Um, there will be. They'll have to be working lockstep. And influencing and going back and forth between, um, you know, the technology side and the and and the value prop side, they'll have to be much more conversant with all those areas to be able to hire the right labor force and to give them the tools yeah. and the culture to be able to succeed. Right. Yeah. 
Um, so I think that that boards, in, in a nutshell, will will have um, very different um, characteristics and uh, capabilities going forward. I do think there's one other theme that we we maybe been underneath all these things, but we haven't unpacked it. But I do think that you know before companies have had like they got into something that they were really good at. They used to have kind of a 10 to 15 year horizon in terms of really making a lot, you know, doing well with that. And then, and then there, there would be innovation and reinvention over time. Right. But I do think that the, uh, the half-life for a company's value proposition, as well as, um, you know, what it offers to the marketplace will, will be much shorter than it has been historically. What does that mean? It means that companies are going to have to, um, and this is really for the CHRO side, um, really instill uh, and create workers that have a much more agility and are faster in terms of testing and learning rapidly um, to be able to put that against a, an environment in terms of the marketplace and the world, right? Which is also gonna be changing very rapidly and quickly, right? If you don't have that mindset that, you know, we've talked Glenn, in other conversations about the fact that companies are under perpetual transformation, right? Yeah. If they didn't believe it before, now they, they got it. But guess what? Now that transformation will have a much shorter half-life. So it's going to be kind of never ending, right? It's going to be very, very quick and you have to have agility. You're going to have to be able to come up with answers quicker get them to market quicker and be willing to understand that you're going to have to innovate and, and, and evolve from that position a lot faster than, than you were used to or ever thought of. Well, in this, in this ties back to why we need to lead in the age of personalization, Eric, because in standardization, the way we wanted employees and or leaders to operate were prescribed. You can yep. throw that out the door. I mean, just the word alone, agility means yep. you need to be uh, more resilient. You need to be bold, courageous. You need to, you have to figure things out on your own while respecting the requirements of the organization. But uh, I, I think we're going to see a new worker come into play, especially now where we're really learning about the value of those that touch the business. They're the ones that are really bringing more inventiveness uh, to, uh, to the fold. So I completely agree with you. But Eric, let me go back a moment because we've had a prior discussion and I liked your point of view on this. And I know it's a bit controversial, but I'd like for you to explain it, it kind of unpack it. Is you had mentioned to me that uh, with respect to boards and the composition of boards and even how boards are formed, that you have a pretty strong view that CEOs shouldn't be uh, defining or uh, creating their own boards. Can you discuss that a bit? Yeah, I mean, that's a controversial topic. Um, a lot of CEOs won't like what I say. Um, no, no, I just but, but it's not a bit about attacking them, but just no, no, kind no, of I'm not, I'm not, a little bit. I'm not, no, no, no. We're, we're talking conceptually right now, too. I mean, um, you know, uh, corporate boards tend to represent, um, you know, and take on the, uh, the, uh, the profiles that uh, a CEO wants, wants them to have, right? And, tend to be, again, to simplify this, but sometimes are a rubber stamp on CEO actions, right? So you don't have kind of the tensions that are necessary to challenge the CEO. Um, 
by definition, right? Because the CEO is the one who gave you the job, right? Of course. There's a lot of, you know, kind of reputational benefit you get from being on a board and all this other kind of stuff. So I just think the very nature of what boards stand for, where, you know, they should perhaps be a little bit more independent of, of, of what the CEO is, is, uh, has brought them there for. So perhaps a third party entity could, should, you know, evolve and play more of a role, but that would be again, an entire redefinition of what a board is, right? Because, because unless it's a public board, you know, public, not publicly traded, but one that's for a public entity where you have a third party, like a government nominate the board, you don't really have that kind of liberty and, um, and independence from the CEO, right? So no, in that, Eric, I, that'll be something that, that I think over time, yeah. the boards are not able to yeah. give public companies or private companies the uh, capabilities to, to do the things we've, we've, we've addressed so far. Um, again, the very definition of the boards, not just in terms of the, the talent, but also where their loyalties lie and how they're evaluated will we'll also come up for discussion. Hey, listen, thanks. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Here, no, no, no. But, but, but the reason why I thought it was important to just address, and you address it extraordinarily well, is that throughout these conversations that Scott and I have been having uh, with your peers, that it, it's clear that this role of hierarchy uh, in and of itself uh, is becoming one that people are questioning. In other words, um, just because you're at the top, do you have all the answers? to what's happening in this crisis today? And the answer is no. Um, they're the ones that have to be empathetic, have to be the mindful, authentic communicator, as you discussed before. But what we're learning now is that right now, organizations, whether they like it or not, doesn't matter what the org chart says, it's be instantly become flat. Whoever can step up their game, those are the ones that we're gonna depend upon most. So I just share this with you because I actually agree with you, Eric. I think where where the power structures and the influ where the where the structures of influence have historically lied, uh, as a consequence of the severity of a crisis like this, they have to change, or they at least yeah. have to start evolving. And we need to start thinking more strategically about why we're doing what we're doing. And this goes back to we cannot find ourselves falling into these standardization traps because they give us comfort. Throw comfort out the door. Right now, we're reinventing at a level that was never imaginable. So I'm gonna ask you, Eric, because you've done such a great job of addressing a lot of tough questions. Scott, can you kind of uh, give us your perspective on uh, the things that Eric and I have been talking about here? Um, what I'm loving uh, that comes through every bit of Eric's discussion about uh, essentially corporate strategy is the constant refrain of going back to, and I keep writing it, empathy and simplicity, empathy and simplicity, empathy and simplicity, that it is easy for us to get lost in a lot of the details about every, all the different dynamics of every different sector of the economy and every sector of a corporate sort of entity from HR to, to strategy to, to development. But what I like is that regardless of where you've gone, both of you in this conversation in terms of trying to understand what might be ahead of us or what might help us to move on from the moment, um, that, that it always is coming back to this communication thing, which is empathy, right? The big thing. But one way to really communicate or to, to, 
to embody empathy, right, is simplicity and simplicity of communication, drawing us back to the core thought and idea, not trying to make it too fancy, but making sure that we're being specific when we say words that we know that we're being heard and that, that when people are hearing us and talking back, that we know that it has been a full uh, feedback cycle. So the thing that's most encouraging to me is that um, I don't think I've ever been more um, optimistic about what a potential future of a corporate world or corporate uh, entity might look like um, in my lifetime based on the words that you and Eric are sharing, because specifically, no matter what issue you're talking about, it comes HR to development. It's coming straight back to empathy and simplicity. And I think if that act alone, that those two bits of sort of ritualistic operationalization, um, I'm finding great comfort in that. And I'm actually wanting to engage more on these two fronts. Well, Scott, but is empathy, or actually I'll ask Eric, but has empathy and simplicity been part of uh, uh, standardization? I don't think so. I think when you talk about empathy and but Great leaders know how to do that. Pardon me? Um, but great leaders know how to have... Ah, great leaders. There's a difference. Not all leaders, great the best, leaders. The best CEOs I've worked with, my prior CEO... His, his, he was a phenomenal communication uh, uh, master. He could communicate things in a way that got people's minds and their hearts, while at the same time, he was always one who could figure out in a, nut, in, in a nanosecond where there were speed bumps that were unnecessarily being created that got in the way of simplicity, too. So great leaders can do that, right? Um, we're going to need to do that at all levels. Uh, to keep people and also to to win their hearts and minds going forward to going back you know and maybe that's a, that's a, a bridge to maybe one of the thing I was gonna gonna bring up which is that yeah um, you know the longer term so I define the longer term maybe two to three two years and beyond right usually it'd be three to five years but I'd say two years and beyond because there's so much change and whatnot I do think that um, there you know and certainly in certain sectors, if not in, in most sectors, the very definition of what purpose, what the organization's purpose for being, reason for being, how it's structured in terms of layers and hierarchies, what its roles are across the functions and, and the jobs they have to play, um, what information they have to make decisions and to facilitate the agility. All these things are going to have to be addressed. Again, going back to Scott's hopefulness in the future, they'll have to be addressed in a way that was never addressed in the past. So is there an opportunity to reinvent or start from scratch? You never start from scratch because the plane's still flying, but yeah. I do believe that um, the extraordinary times we're moving towards should facilitate that, right? And not just in, in, the or, not just in organizations, in, in corporate organizations or public organizations. Yeah. It should happen at the governmental levels. It should happen... Uh, across our healthcare sector, I mean, it should happen across some very important places that are that are what I would deem as being mission critical to us operating as a society going forward, right? Um, you, know, you know, so think about healthcare, right? Healthcare is a really interesting one, right? Yeah. Boy, does it have a lot of layers, right? Boy, is it hierarchical. Boy, does it operate on the low margins. 
I mean, you can just go down the list of all these things. Uh, boy, does it not share and kind of partner well with other, you know, different systems don't partner and, and take down costs and, and, and transfer information. There's a whole new emphasis to do that, right? Of course. Um, because they won't survive. They really will not survive going forward, right? And so, um, you know, some, again, depends on where you're coming from. Amazon is going to keep doing what it's been doing. But for everybody else who's not used to kind of operating this way, mm. it will require fundamental changes across each of those areas I've, 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 I've just mentioned. You know, Eric, as I hear you, and Scott, if you can play off of what I'm going to say here. Um, you know, Eric, maybe without, I mean, I know you were aware that you were saying these things, but what, what Eric has reminded me of, or made me much more aware of, I should say, that when the reinvention process starts, whatever, that's, that, whatever that means, in other words, we're now leapfrogging from transformation to true reinvention. Um, he mentioned his, his, former, uh, his former boss, the CEO, and, and how empathetic and, and ways he can communicate. You're, you're making me feel, Eric, that for reinvention to even begin, there's going to have to be a major restructuring of leadership that can actually pull reinvention off. Because I hope no one out there is assuming that current leadership structures are the right structures for reinvention. Because if that were the case, they would have transformed themselves a long time ago. So I, I bring this out because maybe, Scott, you can address, you know, from a human perspective, you know, what is required? I mean, Eric mentioned the word agility, but what is really required to reinvent? If I could just jump in and please, for a moment before we go to Scott, to go yeah, to Scott because I, I do want to hear how he's going to react to that as well. Uh, I, I do think that um, before you answer that question, at the highest level, this is the CEO and the senior leadership team, yeah, the strategy team. teams. Yeah. They're going to have to conduct a fairly significant war gaming scenario planning exercise to answer these existential questions we've mentioned at, at the beginning of our conversation. What's your reason for being? What's your, what's your mission statement? What's your value proposition, your, your, your product or your service? Whatever it is, and then kind of how you can, you know, partner better across your competitive space and or other areas of your value chain. I think all that has, that work has to be done is kind of foundational. And again, that's why it's long-term because the dust will have settled a little bit, right? But once that work is done and then an outcome of that work would really be going to your question around the people and um, you know side of side of the equation because you can't know what kind of people you're going to need until you know what you're going to be and what your reason for being is, right? So, 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 okay, Scott. Before we go there, you just opened up another door. I love it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's well. There's many layers here. There is. This is so, great. No. So then, if what you say is true, which I believe it is. Um, Who's to say that those leaders that are leading now should be the ones guiding in the battle room? I mean, who's to say that they're the right ones to even begin the evaluation? Don't you think that in a case like this, again, the, 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 the extremes of what we're dealing with now, that maybe the boards would come in and play a more influential yep. role? I mean, yep. my whole point is that, I mean, and I know this may sound a little bit confusing, but if again, I'm making some assumptions. If the if the senior if the 
ELT, executive leadership team, isn't the right team and they're evaluating. And the boards, given where we're at now, may not be the right boards to evaluate. I mean, that's probably all that we have right now. But what is right? Because are we just finding ourselves in the same cycle that we've been in? Let's transform, let's transform, very little evolution, lots of, lots of substitutional thinking, and then we find very little progress. Like, well, how, yeah, how I mean, see, there's a lot there, but look. Yeah, I know simple, there is, because it's complicated. Make it real simple. You start with what you got in terms of your senior leadership team, right? I do think one of the inputs will be the board and perhaps even more importantly, institutional investors, those that own most of the stock of public companies. Yep. Will be rattling the cage because they're already starting to see what's required, and and they're going to be pushing for fundamental change as an outcome of the crisis, right? Uh, again, I'm talking longer term now, right? And so, those that are investing in the company will have uh, gone through a process of asking very hard questions around the leadership team, the CEO, etc., and kind of the points I raised earlier around kind of. How, what 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 the reason for being is of the organization and, and how it's going to win in the future, right? And so if you really go from the institutional base to to the CEO, the chairman of the board, uh, the board, you know, those things will, will trickle through. And ultimately, you know, these are not things that they have 80 years to answer. So some, some short-term actions will happen and others will, will happen as they progress on these things, right? But will it create a lot of Chaos, yes, absolutely. Um, will it create a lot of a need for speed and agility? Absolutely. And so a lot of the people that got you there in the first place won't be around to, to, to facilitate this going forward. So it will require reinvention, right? That's part of the, the challenge and one of the, the themes that, that I think have, we've been touching upon. Yeah. You know. I think, Eric, the, for me, the, one of the ideas here is about the acceleration of the timetable that is going to be part of the future playbooks that we just, like you were talking about, just digital, uh, we got to do this a lot, it's going to happen a lot quicker, whether you want to or not. Um, I think that that comes from, a, uh, from, the, from essentially the, the new information society. Uh, I know we've had an information society for ever since we've been humans, but the sheer um, exponential growth of, the te of technology itself and of the information that is available to you and to any one person on the planet that actually is able to afford credits on a cell phone to go Google something, right? That the sheer amount of information at one's fingertips, even without getting into the, the commer like uh, commodified information that's not available to everybody, but the sheer amount of knowledge that's out there now um, demands that we move faster. Uh, why we needed the time before uh, would have been to figure this stuff out, to collect this knowledge more. But now we have a lot of shortcuts to putting a bunch of information in front of us on the table. And so one thing I've noticed from an education standpoint is that I've literally transformed my entire approach towards teaching, not because I wanted to, because I thought I had a great new idea, but because I was reacting to a reality on the ground level, which was that what we used to teach, which was information itself, is no longer important to teach because it's everywhere. What we're trying to do now, at least in terms of a progressive approach towards finding people that will be on that effective board that you're speaking about, um, are people that don't have the information in their heads, but actually have a critical consciousness in their heads 
so that they could ask questions, formulate questions, and process great amounts of information. Know what is, from their point of view and their mission, what is the company doing? Why are we doing it? What is important information? What is um, not only important information, but what is reliable information and what is not? And so for me, the, the, the leadership of the future is going to be a leadership not of answers, but of questions. And for me, when I look in the classroom at the new generation of people who are going to be taking over all of these jobs that we're thinking about, the ones that I have the most faith in right now are the ones that are just the best at asking questions. The yeah, buts, yeah, buts. So maybe we need a two-year-old in the, in, 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 on the corporate boards. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry to ramble, but, you but know, really, that's the future. You know, great leaders and great minds. Everything. It's about teaching how to ask questions and how to process information. No longer about this is the box of information you need because you're in business. This is the box that you need because you're in the arts and now go do your things. That's gone. Because now the art person gets the business box. The business person gets the art box. So now what are you going to do with that? Mm -hmm. Those are really good points. Um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this as you were talking about how your world is changing and, uh, you know, the, the, two, the two sectors that, top of mind for me that are undergoing the most change uh, because of this current crisis, obviously healthcare, but also education, right? Yeah. I mean, I have a daughter who, who's a sophomore in university and brilliant. everything changed. Everything changed. No longer on campus, yep. learning, you know, uh, you know, on a computer, like we're having this conversation, uh, all the deeply held beliefs of what a college education at least a prized college education we're supposed to be about thrown out the door and suddenly the university of phoenix model that people derided for so long hmm. is now the one that's getting people across the year right they may be getting across on their hands and knees but it's still working and you can really see universities that have really good uh systems and teachers that can work within digital uh frameworks to teach versus yeah. those that can't right Right. We're going to see, we're going to see about a, you know, just like we're going to see in other sectors, we're going to see a, probably around a 20 to 30 or more percent um, loss of institutions that are institutions Absolutely. of higher education Absolutely. that are existing today. Like that's going to happen. We're going to lose a big number, not just because of this current crisis, but because sheer demography we're, you know, yeah, well, I know the demographics of your sector. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I and so, I so, so that's, that's, that's one aspect, but one thing I just want to not push back on, but to just, um, throw a little bit of perspective here that I do agree that say a university of Phoenix model is been effective in delivery of content and, and getting more people into yep. a university discussion and classrooms. Yep. But we don't want to assume that the technique itself of getting people into a college where they can press buttons on a computer and not have to go to a campus and such that that solution, that technology is the answer. It's actually just another tool that's going to be used in a standardized way as much as any other tool can be used or will be used in a standardized way that, that ultimately, you know, we now more than ever in terms of education, we need to, to, to think about creating thinkers, creating questioners. And, and that is not going to happen just because you're at home on a computer versus in a classroom. As a matter of fact, I'm not trying to say that the classroom has to stay exactly as it is. Um, I'm in leadership at an institution right now, at an academic institution right now, and I couldn't be more pleased with the 
potential um, development and evolution of higher education, let alone all education in the world, let alone the United States. This is a tremendous opportunity for us to get things right now, or at yep. least move towards correct or towards a better inclusive, more correctness. But what I will tell you, though, is that we have to be careful about the shortcuts that we could take as an answer when an act, in fact, they're not an answer. They're just a tool to help us ask better questions. No, those are, those are all fair points. I mean, I mean, the reason I raised it was largely because certain sectors, and I'd put higher education and I'd put uh, healthcare there, yeah. right? uh, were just not sectors, at least I perceive them, I could be totally wrong, but at least at my macro view, I never perceive them as being those who are willing to innovate I... to the pace necessary that it would allow them to challenge their existing model and to reset their cost structure, and perhaps most importantly, their relevance and value proposition, right? So right. I'm not saying that some places don't have phenomenal value propositions, yeah. but they were doing so under, under, under you know, a lot of debt, right? And so right. now, you can't live under that debt any longer. You're gonna have That's to make right. hard choices, right? That's and right. so whether it's, I'm making this up, but whether it's, um, you know, there's gonna be a different mix of what, how we define teaching and that allows you to, emerge as a, as a, uh, as a well-versed educated student who can ask the critical questions and, and do problem solving. Right. Yeah. And it won't just be in a classroom. I mean, there's going to have to be other ways of doing it. Right. I don't know the right. answer to that, but it's certainly going to have to happen if we're, if those institutions are going to be able to um, reset their cost structure. Right. Yeah. And, and face some of the, you know, ongoing demographic issues around declining enrollment and things like that have already been going on. Right. Right. I mean, I'll tell you, man, higher ed, as well as the education that happens before that, I mean, it's literally doing its standardized duty or has been doing its standardized duty to produce the exact type of people, or I might call them automatons, yeah. that essentially the economy has been asking for for the past 50 years. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, what we found is that that was probably a bad tack because now we have a lot of people who can do things and, do, and be tasks, tasked with things, and we can measure them about how well and how, uh, maybe how inefficiently they can do certain tasks but the last thing that we've taught and that we haven't taught is why am I doing this task? What is this task for? Mm -hmm. yep. And that's why you have a lot of people that do tasks that literally don't identify with their job. I don't, I don't think of my job as where I, what, who I am. That's just a place I go do things to make money. Mm -hmm. Who I am is the person that shows up after I don't have to be on the clock anymore. And it's specifically because we've turned off the humanness of our employees and turned them into robots because they do tasks that are efficient and measured. And if they do anything to, to block that efficiency and those tasks, that's actually out of their pay grade. And that's up for a boardroom or that's up for somebody else. Yeah. And the beauty I think that can come of this with the new corporate playbook and the new kind of board structure would literally be, as Glenn and I had talked about a little bit earlier, um, the, leveling, the leveling of leadership. Mm -hmm. So Eric, listen, I know it's been an enriching discussion and I can't thank you enough for the time, but it's interesting how we get in our zones of thinking and we just kind of run with it. And I think that this is what um, our audience will appreciate um, quite candidly uh, from what I've heard from those that are reacting to my articles on Forbes. Uh, this is what people want. Uh, people are tired of reading things that sound like as if they are prescribed solutions uh, to a point in time where things are so unknown 
uh, that we don't really know where this is all going to go. We just have perspectives. And I appreciate you sharing uh, the level of depth uh, that you did, Eric, because I think, you know, people need to understand uh, the bigger picture of what goes on behind the scenes uh, in a crisis, but even more so, uh, what's going to be required to reinvent, which concerns me because, again, um, and, and perhaps this is just because I'm so close to corporate America uh, across so many different industries, is that we just don't have the readiness to reinvent. And we're all going to have to kind of figure that on the fly, uh, much like we're figuring things out right now. And that's not disrespecting anybody. It's just that unless you've been through reinvention, uh, you just don't learn that overnight. But anyway, I'm going to, uh, Scott any, or Eric, any closing comments? I mean, I guess the one, look, if there was one question I'd like to ask you is, and I know that you've already addressed this in so many, in, in many different ways, but uh, what are the traps or things that you would think that uh, leaders got to be careful with moving forward? Um, I think I think you I think the number one trap is that you can't look at the past. You've got to look at the future, and you've got to be willing to um, understand and identify the variables going forward that are going to be critical to your company or your institution's success. Right, and you're going to have to deal with them and solve for them. Maybe not perfectly, but with much more agility and um, and a willingness to do so, underpinned by uh, technology. That's what I'd say. Excellent. Excellent. Parting words, Scott? I just love that the playbook that the future playbook that Eric described was filled with nothing but options. Because we don't know what the answer is, right? It's literally literally helping people push them to the question as opposed to the answer. And that was awesome. That, you know, the way you framed that, Scott, was so perfect because as again, you've heard me say this quite a few times, that's what we've learned about standardization. It limited our options. And now we're moving in a trajectory where options are actually opening up. I think this is an opportunity uh, to seize a moment. The question is, are we prepared for it? And what will our leaders, uh, what will be the future playbooks that will allow us uh, to respect and recognize uh, how variability Uh, within options can uh, bring about new opportunities that we've never seen before and take action on them. So great point, Scott. Eric, thanks again for being on the Personalization Outbreak podcast. I love you, brother. Thank you so much for your time. You're great, man. Thank you. I love you too, Scott. It's been a pleasure as usual, okay? Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, Visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.